You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. All right, please open your Bibles to um, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. As we are uh, week number two in our series, The Life of David, And there's been a lot of good excitement about this series in the past week. That's exciting for me to hear, and people are kind of expecting, fired up, looking forward to what's ahead. That makes me expectant as well. That fires me up uh, as well. And so as we turn to 1 Samuel 16, this is a really interesting chapter. Here's why. The first half deals with the anointing of David as future king. That's the first half. David is anointed as the future king. The second half of chapter 16 deals with David now being called to serve the current king. I'll say that again. The first half, David's anointed as future king, but the second half, the first thing he's really called to do after this is to now serve the current king, which of course was Saul. Here's what's clear. The Lord in chapter 16 is building a king. He's set David apart. He's working in David's life. He's preparing David's heart. He's powerfully at work within David. But what happens again, the Lord takes a turn you and I would not expect. Again, he, he so often does this. We think David's anointed king. It would make sense he's on the throne now and all that kind of would go that place. But God draws up a play and comes forward with a design of this play that you and I would not come up with. And the reason for that is God is a a perfect, perfectly wise, and uh, the best coach ever. God knows the play, and he knows which play is needed, and which day is needed, and which life it is needed in. Again, but he does something that you and I would not do. Why? He's preparing David's heart. He's powerfully at work within David. Because in the end, loved ones, he wants to use David. And when David's heart is right, then David is ready then to be used for the purposes of God's kingdom. Now look right here, look right here, ready? He wants to use David, he wants to use you too. And he wants to use me as well. In chapter 16, God is building a king in David. Ultimately, in chapter 16, David's life points to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the Lord is building a kingdom. He's building a king. We're seeing that in the text. We're looking at David's life, but we want to say, but how does that impact me? What can I learn from David's life when God is ultimately trying to build a kingdom? And if you and I are saved in Jesus Christ, we are children of God as we just sung, and we understand that we are children of the king then, and then we know that we are actually part of the kingdom. And then we say, Lord, build your kingdom here. Build your kingdom here. I want to look at David's life I want to learn, and I want to know you're powerfully at work in his life. I want you to be powerfully at work in my life, in this church, in this time right now. Yeah, you're building a king, but God, I pray. I pray that you would build your kingdom here, now, man, woman, children, church, nation, world. God, build your kingdom. Can I get an amen? This is what we're seeking to do. This is the question that we're seeking to answer today. What does it mean when God is powerfully at work in my life? How do I know? When God is powerfully at work in my life, and we're going to learn this, there's a thousand reasons biblically to this question, but we're going to see three today from the life of David. Is God at work in my life? Well, here's how I know. Let's just jump to the first one uh, right now, point one, and then we'll read God's word. Here's the first indication that I know God's at work in my life. Number one is this, he will call me positively. He will call me 
positively. Look at 1 Samuel 16, verse 14 now. Let's get to the word now. So the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me, Saul liked this idea, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Verse 17 begins to understand, this is now the call of God upon David's life for the next step of the development of his heart. But first of all, notice this. We read verse 14, look at verse 13. In verse 13, it says, the spirit, this is one of the great turning points of the Old Testament, by the way. Verse 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And the very next verse, no coincidence here, this is the passing of the torch. This is significant in the kingdom of God and the building of a king. And the very next verse, the spirit of the Lord uh, departs from Saul. In terms of Saul, this is tragic. Saul's life is one sad, tragic tale of disobedience and rebellion. I want to give us a little bit of a context as we come to verse 13 and 14 in chapter 16, and the chapter preceding 16, of course, being chapter 15, details the story of Saul's self-destruction. Now learn here, loved ones, learn. Like These are massive lessons that we're going to learn what not to do, okay? What not to do right here. I'm going to go over it with us here briefly. Saul was commissioned by the Lord to destroy the Amalekites. Destroy them all. All the animals, king, everyone. But instead of fulfilling his commission, he partially obeyed. And what we learn in Scripture is partial obedience is really no obedience at all. So what Saul did in his own wisdom, he spared King Agag, he spared the best of the sheep. He spared the best of the oxen. And what, what he did was, in light of God's command, he adjusted God's order or God's command in light of his own wisdom. Okay, So there's a very big lesson right here. He knew clearly what God had asked him to do. There was no question the commands were so clear. In light of his own wisdom... And in the light of the pressure he faced around him, he took God's command, he adjusted it, and suited it to his own liking. Loved ones, that is always, always going to be a bad plan. I know what you said, God, but I think I have a better plan. I'm going to twist it, makes my life a little easier, and therefore we're going to adjust it and see how things will work out. This just did, it won't work out well at all, okay? Now, for the mature Christian, the principle they get from this is this truth right here. Ready? Here it is. It's a, it's a good one, man. It is profound. Ready? Ready? God is smarter than me. And if God is smarter than me, I just do whatever he says. Whatever God says, do it. Well, I like my way. I know what God said, but I want it. It's amazing how many portions of the church see the direct command of God, but instead adjust it to what they think will capitulate to culture and somehow be more liked by man and then disregard the fear of the Lord. That's a church saying, we're smarter than you, God, because your Bible now is outdated. That's not going to work out well. Another sample of life, I remember a young couples who decide, yeah, I know God's word says I shouldn't fornicate before getting married, have sex before marriage. You know what? Let's get with the times, man. God's word is old. We're going to do it our way, and we're going to adjust God's command. I think it's going to work out okay. You're wrong. You will be sadly mistaken as you go through life thinking that somehow you can go against what God has said and somehow that will work out well. No, I think we'll live together before we're married because everyone's doing it. Come on, relax, lighten up. 
foolishness. And whenever we take God's command and somehow try to adjust it in light of our own wisdom, that is demonstrating how silly we actually are. This is what Saul was doing. Samuel then is told by the Lord about Saul's disobedience. Samuel was so angry, but Samuel also was so grieved. The text says in chapter 15, he cried to the Lord all night. You can see how much Samuel had a heart for Saul. Saul, what are you doing? Saul, why have you done this? Saul, you had this chance. Saul, you knew what God said. Why are you going against the command of the Lord? He's crying to the Lord all night. And Samuel comes up to Saul, and here's what Saul says. We're we're learning lessons here. Don't do this. Saul says to Samuel, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Really, Saul? What has he just done? He's rationalized his sin. He's convinced himself it's not what it really is. We do that. We do that. We're tempted to all the time. And Samuel then says this very, very famous verse. He says, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear, Saul? And what a statement that was. What a moment. You know what you sense in Samuel? You sense in Samuel, Saul, why didn't you obey? Saul, why don't you just obey? Saul, why does the will of God have to pass through your will? Why does God's will have to go through your will, Saul? Why can't just God's will be God's will? You know, life is hard enough as it is. Can we not try to play God? I mean, life life is hard enough as it is. Can we not stop trying to play God? Saul, can you not try to play God? But Saul, when faced with true conviction, when Saul confronted with his own sin, he does what cowards do. Don't do this either. What cowards do when they are confronted with their own sin is they blame other people. And Saul said, the people made me do it. The people did it. And Samuel couldn't take it. And he says, stop. Read the text. Stop. Heard enough of the rationalization of sin. Saul, you know full well this is your responsibility and this is your sin. Loved ones, I just have to stop and make this point right here. Just If your pattern, if our pattern in life is blaming others for our sin, you will not win. You know how many marriages go down the tubes? Because they just can't own their own sin. How many leadership structures fail because they just can't own their own? How many relationships are so wounded and destroyed because they can't own? It's their fault, his fault, her fault, that fault. This was Saul, man. Don't be a Saul. He would not own what was his to own. Who knows what would happen if he just owned it all. Instead, he blames the people. Samuel really can't take it. And then Samuel, he says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, he says here, he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And what he's saying here, he's like, Saul, Saul, God doesn't want religious external obedience. God's not looking for some uh, pharisaical game. He doesn't want something on the outside where the inside, nothing's changed. God wants obedience from the heart. Saul, he wants the heart. He's saying that to us today. He wants your heart. He'll take the heart a million times over than some kind of outward, external, religious game that we're playing. And the next verse he says to Saul here in verse 23, he says this, for rebellion is as a sin of divination. Saul, don't you understand to the Lord? Divination is the same as witchcraft. Your rebellion against the command of the Lord is as serious as witchcraft. 
God doesn't want some church goer standing up, sitting down, leaving, and then un- God wants a surrendered and repentant heart before him. This context now takes us to verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16. It's here then, in light of all that's happened, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David, and then the Spirit of God departs from Saul. Now, when we read verse 14, i got to take just a couple of moments to clarify some very important theology because I know there's a number of thoughts that are running through this room right now. As we look at verse 14, it says, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, what exactly is happening here? Saul, in the Old Testament, Saul never received the Spirit of God in terms of New Testament understanding of regeneration, sanctification, to be born again, uh, converted, and baptized by the Holy Spirit of God. That's not what's happening in the Old Testament with Saul. Saul, rather, is receiving a temporary uh, filling of God's Spirit to fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to him. This is in contrast with the New Testament, as we have just said, where the person is genuinely saved... And as they are saved, the once and for all baptism of the Holy Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism of the Holy Spirit fills them, and the Bible tells us that we are sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, the assurance of our salvation. So the Old Testament temporary, but the New Testament, when we have the Spirit of God. So here's what I'm going to make. It's crystal clear right now. When you read verse 14, what you are not taking away is, can I lose the Spirit of God? If you are genuinely saved in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose the Holy Spirit, okay? You can quench Him. You cannot lose Him. Which also means then, you cannot lose your salvation, That has to be as clear as I can possibly state, okay? You're here today. If you are genuinely saved in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. Somebody please say amen, all right? All right, no, no, hear that, hear that, hear that. That's what we understand. This is the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. However, let me say this, and this is part of the tricky theology, but it's important. If we are constantly pushing the Holy Spirit away from us through sin, Let us not be surprised that we become unusually uh, vulnerable to the attack of the evil one. If we are constantly pushing away the Spirit of God through the pursuit of sin in our lives, let's not be surprised that we find ourselves unusually vulnerable to the attack of the devil. When we do this, we are like a stray antelope wandering around in a savanna of lions. And it's just a matter of time before we get pounced on and devoured. Let me also say this, okay, and this is one last point of clarity and just in this one point of theology so important. If our lives are marked by habitual sin and there's no genuine repentance, there's no genuine fruit, like if sin is the mark of our lives in terms of habitual sin that we have never seen victory over, that there's been no real sorrow for that and we're going along, and the, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, if sin marks our lives and we don't really care, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are truly in the faith. Because if someone's truly saved in Christ, they have the Holy Spirit in them. They have broken the chains, man. They have been set free. They are forgiven. They must change. Hard days, yes. Ups and downs, yes. Valleys, yes. Mountains, yes. But ultimately, we must start becoming more like Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of people, man, oh, I know Jesus, I know Jesus, and yet sin is the dominating characteristic of their life and victory is not seen. The Bible tells us, just look, look, look closely, look carefully. Are we sure 
are we sure? Again, I needed to take some time on that, and I think you realize why right now. As we go back to our text here, what happens? So God removes his protection from Saul, and now the evil spirit fills the void upon Saul's life. A a, a devastating turn of events for Saul. Notice the solution of the servants of Saul in verse 16. So this is apparent to a lot of people. The servants see this. In verse 16, they're like, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play, and you will be well. Now, now, in one sense, the advice of the servants here. It's helpful. It's good. It's good. Music is created by God. Today, uh, the, the worship music of God, just so encouraging. It lifts our hearts, especially combined with such rich theology. God uses it. He's always used that. It's such a blessing. In one sense, this advice is good. But in another sense, uh, this advice is not good enough. Because really with the servants and their understanding what they are doing, they are asking for a Band-Aid solution uh, for a man who needs heart surgery. They are asking for some music to be played that will soothe his symptoms, but will not actually deal with it. What does Saul need most of all right now? What does he need? What he needs most of all is a broken and contrite heart. Because God does not despise that. What Saul needs more than anything else is a genuine path of repentance. Because that is the person, that is the man or woman God rushes in to fill and use. That is the person God calls. The person broken in their sin. The person understanding they need the Lord. So they're like, play some music. But the problem with this solution is, again, it's just masking the real problem and providing a temporary escape and ignoring the real issues. Loved ones, be very, very, this is the, this is the system of our world. The system of our world is cover the pain with medication, drugs, and endless forms of entertainment. Be very, very careful that you and I don't fall victims to this system that is all around us all the time. Take away my pain. Just take away the feeling of pain. Make me feel happy for a few moments. Give me the drugs. Give me the medication. Give me the entertainment just so I can feel better for a couple of hours, and then we'll see what happens after that. The problem and the devastation with that system, which our whole world is under right now, it is only soothing the symptoms. It never changes the actual need. Unless you deal with the root, you will not change the fruit. And so you have endless cycles of people and pain and misery, anger, frustration, and sin because they've never actually tackled the root. You can play the music all you want, but unless you change the heart, you will not change the fruit of your life. Saul needed repentance. But what he got here in this sense was, let's just make him feel better. But of course, Saul would never be used in the same way again. I mean, who isn't that for here today? Where are we so vulnerable to the system, the demonic system of our world, of temporarily masking the pain of our lives and the attempts to feel better temporarily? God, give us clarity and help us to see and then lead us to repentance that we might be free. Notice verse 17, Saul hears the suggestion, he likes it, he says to his servants, all right, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Okay, so now we see God's plan for David unfolding. God is at work in David's life, and God is using Saul and his servants now to call David. David's anointed as king, he's tending the sheep, he's serving the Lord where the Lord has placed him, he's waiting patiently, and God now begins to move. 
See, see, loved ones, when the Lord is at work within our lives, positively he will call us too big, too small. What we see as small is big. What we see as big is small. But God will work. God will call. He's looking for those that he can use. And when he's at work within our lives, again, he will call us. And he will call us, listen, uh, uh, most often he will call us in this way to a place of service. Notice David was called up to the palace. Big promotion from the shepherd's field. But at the same time, he's called down to serve. He's anointed as king. He's anointed as king. But the next step in his development of his heart is to serve the current king. We would say, that seems kind of strange. Not strange to God. God's developing the heart of a man who will be one of the greatest kings ever in the history of his people. He's developing a man that will carry the title, a man after God's own heart. And he knows exactly what David needs. But the point is here, he's calling David to serve. When God's at work in your life and mine, he will call us. He will call us to serve in our homes. He will call us to serve in church. He will call us to serve the lost. He will call us to serve the poor. He will call us to serve not for our sake, but his. He will call us to serve. And remember, in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. The way up is down, loved ones. And David was learning this lesson, too, to make him a man of character, a man who understands the power and the will of God for his life. If God's at work in you, he will call you. He will call you positively. Leads us to number two, which is this. If God is at work in you, he will authenticate me powerfully. He will authenticate me. This is one of my favorite points. Verse 18. One of the young men heard what Saul said, and he's like, okay, I know this guy, this son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's skillful in playing. He's a man of valor, courage. He's a man of war. He's prudent in speech. A man of good presence. And this is it. And the Lord is with him. And the Lord is with him. Saul heard this and he sent messengers to Jesse Jesse, and he said, send me David, your son. Notice, notice, who is with the sheep. What do we learn here? God's at work in David's life. How do we know? When God is truly at work in someone, he authenticates himself in them. I mean, look at how verse 18 starts. One of the young men answered, wait, wait, I know someone, I know someone. And this young man provides incredible detail about David. So tell me, do you think David was campaigning around going, I'm this amazing shepherd, I'm this amazing speaker, I'm this amazing man of war, I'm this amazing uh, musician, uh, God is with you. Do you think David's campaigning this? Not a chance. So what's the difference here? How, does it, how do these guys know? Because the Lord is campaigning for David. It's the Lord who's doing it, loved ones. Okay, so when I see this truth, I say, stop the presses, stop the presses. If this lesson could be learned by us, how many of our lives would be changed? What is it? It's the Lord who authenticates me, not me. How often we fight for ourselves. How often we promote ourselves. How often we project ourselves. And that only proves how stupid we really are. Because if we try to put ourselves forward, we can't win. But when God does it, we can't lose. This is why one of my favorite verses is 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the, look at, humble. Take the action of humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this is the mighty hand of God over here. The mighty hand, not our, God's mighty hand. So at the proper time, see, our thing is we, we get impatient. We don't believe in this. We, we want to say, I'm going to take control. I'm going to do it. But the proper time, God, God may exalt you. This is David's life. This is why he was used. He believed it's the Lord who authenticates. 
It's the Lord's timing. It's the Lord's strength. It's the Lord's grace. It's the Lord's power. God is the one who does this. So again, again, see this in the text. David is not posturing. David is not campaigning. David is not forcing anything. What is David doing? Faithfully serving where he is, but waiting for God's call when it comes. Here's a great principle. God opened the door to the palace. David only had to walk through the door. And if we could learn that in our lives, wow, we would save ourselves a lot of pain, misery, and heartache. God's the one who opened the door. David only had to walk through. What is that? Faith, surrender, understanding God cares, God knows, and God is the one who does. Our problem is, though, we want to take the wheel. God's driving. He drives, right? He, he's the driver in our lives. But our problem is we get impatient. We lack faith. We want things to go according to our will. So what happens is God's got the wheel, and we steal the wheel from God. Have you, how many times have we done this in our life? We, we, we take the wheel from God and say, God, you're going too slow. Hurry up. Let me drive. God's driving along, and we take the wheel from God. God, 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 you're going the wrong way. Why'd you, don't, don't turn that way. Go this way. Come on. Give me the wheel. How many times in our lives have God been driving, and we're like, wait, 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 God, I know a shortcut, man. Give me, give me, I'll drive, I'll drive, all right, let's go this way. How many times have we done that in seemingly trying to force our will upon the Lord's? You know, one of my favorite phrases has been in the last several months, it's, it's just been this, it's been so helpful for me, I commend it to you. The phrase from my lips so often has been, whatever you want, Lord, whatever you want. You're like, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, is, I don't know what's best for me. But I know God does. And um, I can see some things that I think should happen, but at the end of the day, I believe, I believe when I'm in that place of sincere faith that God knows and God is best and God does what is right. And so therefore, I want to put my life in his hand. And I just want to trust him with whatever he wants to do with me. And so I convince myself, I preach to myself, whatever you want, Lord, and it brings peace to my heart and soul because it allows me to give up, give up in the moment and just to say, you're driving, Lord, not me, and you will always take me to the place that I really need to be. Let me ask you this question. When we steal the wheel from God, where exactly do we think we're going? I mean, do we really think we'll go to a better destination than God himself? Do we really think that? See, that, that just proves how dumb we are. We think we're smarter than God. So I wonder right now, I wonder right now how many people, you know, God's, God's driving, and in our lives we've been like, give me the wheel, God. You're taking way too long. I don't have time to wait for you. I don't want to go over there. Give me the wheel, God. And what we do is we white, I want white knuckles. Can you see white knuckles? White knuckles. Arr! And we white knuckle the wheel, and we're like, I'm going to get there. I'm going to do it. God, you're, I'm going to do it. Are you watching? I'm going to show you how to. How many people have stolen the wheel from God? Amazingly, God, though, God's just kind of like, he doesn't be like, no, it's my wheel. He's like, okay, if you, if you really want to drive. Like, he doesn't force his will upon us. Now, he might cause the car to crash in the ditch or something, right? Like, because <laughs> he disciplines those he loves, right? He might cause a flat tire. And often what will happen is we're driving, driving like, dead end, dead end, dead end. We're like, Why can't I get where I want to go? What's wrong with this situation? How come on? And God's like, well, because you took the wheel from me. And I, I know where you need to go. See, so what surrender and faith, this is, this is one of the powerful points of David's life. David's like, here's the, here's the sign of faith and surrender. Ready? Watch, watch, watch. It's this. 
It's letting go of the wheel. This is, this is faith. This is me, control. This is surrender, I don't know. And then you hand the wheel over to God, and by faith, you trust that he loves you, and he has the best possible plan for you. And you find yourself saying, whatever you want, Lord. Whatever you want, Lord. Yep. And this is what David was like. And notice what happens. Notice the specifics of of verse 18. Notice David, a man of music, a man of courage, a man of war, a man of wise speech, a, a handsome man. He was good looking, the Bible says. A man of good presence. But then this says it all. But the Lord was with him. See that? The servant says, and the Lord is with him. You know, a lot of gifted people in our world, aren't there? A lot of good-looking people, a lot of gifted musicians, a lot of gifted people in business, a lot of gifted people in intellect, and yet, if you put the Lord into that mix, look out. It's a whole different story. And this was David. This was his life. You want to see the turning point in David's life? The turning point of David's life was verse 13. Verse 13. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. You know John Knox, I read this week, John Knox said, among others, he said, one man with God is, is a majority. One man with God is a majority. You got God, it's all you need, man. It's all you need. He's everything. So some of you right now are like, okay, well, I want the Lord to authenticate me. Uh, I want to be in a place where I'm a, a vessel for honorable use. Uh, what do I do, Robbie? Uh, how, do I, how do I do this? Where do I start? The starting point for being authenticated by God is understanding you can't do it. The starting point is understanding this isn't a solution or formula of behavior. This is an attitude of I'm a living sacrifice. I give up whatever you want. Here I am. I trust in you. I pursue you. Use me as you would. That's the starting point. Let me, let me flush this out for us right now. I want... I want to give you some handles to grab onto because I know a lot of us in this room right now are like, I, I, I want to be authentic. Who wouldn't want to be authenticated by the Lord? Of course, that's the call of the Christian life. Let's follow in David's example. I got five R's I want to walk you through right here on the screen. I, I want the Lord to authenticate, to authenticate me for his glory. And, and that's one of the big keys here. It's not for me. It's, it's ultimately for him. The first R is this. It's Repent. The single greatest turning point in anyone's life is repentance because it's the first turning point. I repent of my sin, it replaces with God's grace. I repent of sin, I receive the power of the Holy Spirit. I repent of sin, I know the love of God. I repent of my sin, I take the trash out, I get the virtue of God's Spirit in my life. Unless we repent, there's no chance to be authenticated by God. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Listen, oh God, you will not despise. God does not turn away the truly broken and repentant person. He doesn't. This is how we get authenticated. But this isn't I'm doing something in order to please God. I believe in my heart this is who I am, and I believe in my heart this is who God is. Second one, renew Renew your mind. Uh, Romans 12, verse 2. Uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that you may have wisdom to discern what the will of God is. If we don't have God's word, even God's word today, right now, again, always realize what's happening. Your mind is being renewed, your thinking patterns are changing, and you desire now to love the Lord as opposed to self. Why? Because we're doing this. If you want to be authenticated, you have to be in the word of God, not as a check mark, as a lifeline. As a way to our compass, our guide, our hammer, the, the fire that cleanses us. God's word is everything. Renew your mind. Thirdly, revere. This is reverence. This is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So therefore, if I'm not revering the Lord, I don't have wisdom. This is the single greatest cause of the demise of the church in Canada. You lose the fear of the Lord, you lose the wisdom of God, you become foolish instead. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I honor you, God. You are holy. You are glorious. You are majestic. You are God. I am not. You are smart, God. I am not. You know I don't. You are to be worshipped and followed. I am to be bowing down and humbled. It's an attitude. It's a posture. This is who the Lord authenticates. The Lord says, I can work in that person. The Lord says, I will work in that church. Repent, renew, revere, rely. Rely. This is dependence. John 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. You want to be authenticated? You want to truly be authenticated? This is a life of dependence upon the Lord because apart from him, we can do nothing. God, authenticate me. Then you will, you will lie and I will lie before him saying, God, help. God, help. Apart from you, I can do nothing. The last hour is this. It's rejoice. This is really about the gospel right here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Ready? Ready? Listen, listen. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, loved ones, in the gospel. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is God's will for you and me. It's God's will. This, this is God's will. I, I, I'm rejoicing in the gospel. I'm so thankful that I'm saved in Jesus Christ. He works in these people. Again, this isn't a, a formula. If I do these five things, God, will you bless me? No, 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 no. It's because you were so awesome and I'm so nothing. I put myself before you and I say, God, would you please just work in me? Would you find me faithful to the task that you've asked me to do? Can my life be used for your glory? That's the person God authenticates. And it's not much more complicated than that, I'm telling you. It is not much more complicated than that. When God is at work within me, he will call me. He will authenticate me. And thirdly, he will use me uniquely. If God's at work in you, loved ones, he's going to use you. He's going to use you to build his kingdom. Look at verse 20. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his son to Saul. Verse 21, and David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever an evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed 
from him. I just want to quickly show you three principles here from David's life of him being used. Notice this, number one. Notice this, number one. A God wastes nothing. God wastes nothing. Do you think David, who's playing the lyre in the shepherd's field, he ever imagined the day he'd be sitting in the palace playing for Saul? But God chose to use that skill that he provided for David's life, and he would use it for his glory. By the way, this is what a lyre looks like. It's like an old-fashioned guitar, really. David would have taken this. How many psalms did he write in playing these tuned to his lyre, kind of part harp, part guitar? This is what that instrument is. Listen, God wastes nothing. You ever think about that in your life, the things that you have done? You're like, what a waste of time this is. And God, I'll show you a waste of time, God says. I will use that in some way, in the ways you never expect. And he takes it, and, and then he redeems it for his glory. That's awesome. God wastes nothing. Here's the second thing we learn. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. You might be like, well, duh, pastor. Of course he does, right? But listen, listen. Do you think David sitting in the palace whatever time he was there, do you think he learned a few lessons about what it means to be a king? Do you think as he sat there playing the lyre, he learned a few lessons of what it means not to be a king or what not to do? See, God was preparing David. He was allowing him in a season where he wasn't king to have some of the best possible observations and learning of what it means to be a king. And you see when God does that in your life? That God puts you in seasons that maybe you wouldn't choose for the moment, but he prepares you and allows you to observe and learn and to see things because he's going to use that at some point later on in your life. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And the last thing I wrote down here in terms of being used was um, God alone gives favor. God alone gives favor. So Saul says, David has found favor in my sight to Jesse. Now, is that David's doing? No, it's not. It's God's doing. It's God's doing. You know how many unexplainable stories of favor exist in this room? So many. How do you, how do you define that? How do you summarize that? How do you explain that? It's God. God gives favor. The favor of God. This isn't fully accurate in the terms of this, but it's close. When I open the fridge, I often just want to, if there's any food in there at all, favor, man. It's certainly grace. It's, it's not deserved. To be here right now to do this, to see baptisms, what is that? That's not you or me. That's the Lord. That's favor. We don't deserve it, but he loves to give it. Can you see favor in your past? Can you see favor in your present? Through the hard, through the difficult. Listen, the stories that will come of God's favor in the future will be so many. Do yourself a favor. Give thanks to God for his favor. Because that's all it is. It's not you and me. It's not you and me. It's him. God's at work in David's life. God authenticates him, and God is the one deciding to use him. Why? Because God is building a king. But again, hear this. Beyond this, and most importantly for us today, God is building a kingdom. David's life points forward to Jesus Christ. As I said, as I started, some of you were like, well, I'm not going to be anointed as king anytime soon. I mean, I'm not a David. Well, that might be true. Maybe you're someone even better. What do you mean? You saved in Jesus Christ, and you're a child of God. And if you're a child of God, then again, you're a children of the King of Heaven. And last time I checked, that's better than being the earthly king. And if you're a child of the King of Heaven, then you are His kingdom. We are the kingdom of God. And that's when you say, build your kingdom here, God. I see David being used, and I can take these principles right now, 
and I want to be used too in my life, in my marriage, in my family, in my church, in my community, in the nation I live in, in the world that I belong in. Build your kingdom here, God. Now build your kingdom in my life because what else is there to live for? And that's what we ask for right now. I see you're building a king, but I pray you'd build your kingdom. Use me, God. Use me. And I pray you're saying the same thing.